turkey, white meat, stuffing without the liver and gizzards in it, gravy over everything, and leftovers for days on end, and I am a happy man. I hope you have enjoyed this week celebrating Thanksgiving. Uh, there's a lot to be thankful for. Uh, we have life. We have breath. If you're hearing my message, you are a blessed person because you're alive with the opportunity to continue to bring glory to God. And that's what we seek to do today. And so I'm going to ask that you turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. If you are new here, my name is Tony Hunt and I'm pastor here at LAFC. And uh, it's been my privilege and honor to serve at LAFC for several years now, and even in a time such as this. Uh, nothing prepares you for seasons like we're in, uh, but hopefully if you've been around here or been listening in, you'll discover that there is hope, there is joy, and there is no reason to fret or fear, and, uh, and we're just navigating each day uh, with the wisdom and direction that God provides. So in this series, we've been looking at many different encounters between Jesus and other people that would bring about, either in answer or in example, greater understanding as to who Jesus is, why it matters to know who Jesus is, and the implications it might have for your life. And so in this, it's all been human encounters, all found in the book of John, and Every one of these encounters led to Jesus saying the phrase, I am, and then finishing it with something that would give greater understanding as to who he is. Last week, we looked at him saying in John 15, I am the vine, which then means that as branches that are connected to the vine, we only have life. We only have life if we're connected to the vine. And then in the weeks prior, we were looking at that he said he, was the, he is the resurrection and the life. So any hope of life beyond now is found only in him. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father or come to the Father except through him, which was an exclusive statement that was doubling down on something he said before that when he said, I am the gate. No one can enter into the family of God or the sheep pen of God unless they come through me. All these things have been pointing to some intentional teaching so that people would know without excuse the account that they must give. We are going to go back into the book of John. After, you know, we were in John 15 last week. We're going to be in John 8 today because I want to look at what are the consequences of your decision of Believing that Jesus is who he says he is, or to doubt or reject what Jesus says about himself. So let's look in beginning in verse 21 what these consequences might be. It says, once more Jesus said to them, and by the way, the audience at this point, he's having an encounter with some teachers of the law. And he says, once more Jesus says to them, I'm going away and you will look for me. And you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is, he, is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. So Jesus makes a statement right there before we continue on in the text. Makes a statement that's pretty significant. Verse 24 again. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe in who I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Well, it's a very important thing to then dissect this, to understand, first of all, what sin is, and second of all, what death might mean in this text. So let me give you a definition of sin that comes out of 
a book called Systematic Theology. It's an easy read. It's about four inches thick and will take you about the next five years to understand it all. Um, but it's a, a great book written by Wayne Grudem, and he gives this definition to sin that I believe is pretty accurate. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Let me say it again. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So in other words, sin can be accomplished by, yes, act, doing something that would be wrong, that would violate the holiness of God. It could be something even as simple as your attitude not being correct. That yes, you can sin in your attitude and violate the law of God and his moral code and his holiness. But just in case you can say, well, you know what? I have a pretty good attitude. I don't commit egregious acts. That's why it's really important to catch the third term here where he says, any failure to conform to the moral law of God is sin in act, attitude, or nature. Nature being that which you can't decide. It is what you are. It's the essence of your being. So, in other words, if there is something about your nature that does not conform to the holiness and moral code of God, there is sin in your life. With that being said, then it would be true, this statement that I'm about to give you. And that is, that sin is more insidious than cancer, for it consumes the spirit of a person. Sin is more insidious than cancer, for it can consume the spirit of a person. So why do I say it like that? Cancer has the ability, yes, to attack the whole body. Yes, that attack upon the whole body can lead to an issue of emotion or, you know, other anger and things that can rise up because of it. But it cannot attack your soul. Your soul and your spirit is something that that which is physical cannot touch. Yet sin does and has and will continue to affect the inner part of our beings, that which something physical cannot touch. So I will say it again, sin, therefore, is more insidious than cancer, for it can consume a person in spirit, soul, and inner being. So is this consistent with other teachings of Scripture? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Just turning to the right, or again, if you're on a tablet, just click on Romans and we'll go to 3. And we're going we're gonna to be in Romans for a little bit, and then we'll go back to John chapter 8. Some of you will find this very familiar, might know it as the Romans Road, but we're not going to do the classic following of Romans Road, but I will begin with the first two points. The first of all, in light of this idea that sin is something that can consume even that which is beyond the physical, your very nature, the essence of who you are, you need to see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For some of you have fallen into sin. Okay, I didn't hear any amens. No, it's the, the statement is this. It says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, the glory and the holiness and the standard, the moral code of God. All people have sinned. Very few people would be so arrogant to say they're perfect. Now, I'm, I'm going to guess there are some very uh, arrogant people on this world that might attempt to say that. But it'll be proven to be true that they're not perfect. Sin becomes us all. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and look at, it's another restatement of the same thing. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in the same way, death came to all people 
because all sinned. Okay, so sin becomes us all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. And according to this text in chapter 5, verse 12, and that sin came at birth. It's something we received as part of being mankind. The original sin happening in the garden. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created in complete holiness and perfection. They could be in the presence of God without fear. The holiness of God would destroy anything that would, be, that would lack perfection. But in their case, because they were perfect, they were able to be in that presence without fear. And when they sinned, the separation between them and God happened. God had created them for having relationship with them. He desired a relationship with them, but they condemned us all. This sin inherent to us all continues forward. Just in case you think that it has not, let me give you an example. In this room right now is somebody that I love dearly, and it's my daughter, Kira. She is my firstborn. And there's always that hope that when you see that infant come out of the womb and you see such beauty and, and innocence, that maybe, maybe the first child has been born since Jesus that is born without sin. I've shared this story before, but it's so consistent with this text. I love that girl, and she went through quite the challenges in those two years of life, first two years of life, when, and when she had multiple surgeries, we were told she would never be able to walk. She also was dealing with some other developmental challenges, but we saw still through it all the Spirit of God blessing her and growing her up into what you, many, many of you know, as being a very sweet girl. She loves to worship. But let me tell you, there was a moment where any dream of her being sinless was crushed. At age two, yes, age two, the evidence of sin and the inherent sin that, she, that we all receive from Adam and Eve happened in this moment right before a fireplace made of brick. And on this fireplace, the lower mantle of that fireplace was a pot, a planted pot with this plant that was in it. She had crawled over in her full-bodied cast from being in it from her previous surgery. Crawls over to it, and she starts to reach for that plant. To which I say, honey, don't do that. Don't touch it. And she did this. And she starts to reach for it, and she turns, and she looks at me and finishes the rest of the spacing and touches the plant. And she looks with that look that says, now what are you going to say? To which I said, honey, no. And I slapped her hand, thinking that'll be enough because she grieved her father for disobeying him. Again, she's a perfect child. I'm thinking maybe that was just a weak moment. She reaches again. This time, never letting her eyes leave my eyes. And has that look like of defiance that I'm going to touch this. She grabbed a hold of that plant to which I then had to, you can't do the normal kind of spanking when she's in a full body cast. That means nothing. So you, you, and you can't like put her in a stationary position because again, that meant nothing to her either. I had to show her how deeply she had grieved me. But the sin continued. Somehow, in the midst of it all, our relationship has been spared. She sits here today, smiling and laughing, knowing that her dad's talking about her. But the reality is, even at age two, the evidence of sin in her life was there. I would tell you the story of my evidence of sin from age two, but I don't have any recollection of those years. But my parents would be glad to tell you when they first saw sin in my life. The reality is, it's not just the act. It's not just the attitude. It's our nature. It's part of us. We were born with it. It's not something we can undo. It's not something we can just separate off from us. We're stuck in it. 
And on top of that, another attribute that is true to all of us is that our natural propensity is to justify our sin. I mean, think about it. Nobody goes around saying, hey, I just sinned this morning. Let me tell you about it. And say it with joy and pride. No, when sin is seen or imperfection or a failure, we tend to want to hide it. And if somebody wants to talk to us about it, we might get defensive. Again, with my mom watching on, she'll tell you that is one of my greatest sins. Being defensive when being called out. Because in our eyes, we tend to think we're innocent. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 21 that it is true to mankind that we want to look past the errors of our ways. Even justify it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul will say this. He says, I might be, you know, again, guiltless in conscience. I might even think that I am completely right. But then he says, but that does not make me innocent. See, Paul knew that the flesh has a way of trying to make you think more highly of yourself than you actually are. Dismissing sin when it shows up. Minimizing it when we do it. Thinking that it's no big deal if it's a lie that's under, uh, boasted behind something that we think is a greater cause. If I say a little lie, the greater end justifies it. Or if I cut corners in stealing something, if the end game is okay, then we tend to think, I'm all right. You see, it's not usually in the big mistakes that we tend to justify sin. It's in the small ones where we tend to think, I'm okay. I'm mostly good. And the, and the end game, it'll be better if I just simply do not acknowledge the sin. But that's where sin begins to grow even more. Nobody starts off saying, I want to kill someone. But unchallenged sin of anger will lead to such acts. Nobody gets married saying that I intend to be unfaithful. But yet, dismissing moments of lust done in privacy will grow to something where you have very little ability to say no to temptation. See, that's the natural propensity of all of us. That's what a nature that is riddled with sin looks like. And sin, because it consumes our being, means that we're in a constant struggle to do that which is right. I want you to turn to now the, the next chapter, a couple chapters over in Romans chapter 7. And I'm going to read verses 14 to 24. Paul says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? 
So in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. So our sin earns death. It's what separates us from God, but in the end, it's what brings the wrath and judgment of God that says, All who have sinned are now condemned to death. The death penalty is the verdict. So when you understand that statement that's already been said in Romans, and then you see this where it's saying, I find this law at work. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. Can you relate? I call this the doo-doo passage. It's a mess, and nobody wants to touch it. But it's real. There is a battle that is going on inside of us. Even when we desire to do the good things, the passion and the energy by which we are willing to violate something is intense. The mere mention of a law causes people to want to do the very thing the law says no to. My daughter's desire to touch that plant, I have no idea what was in her mind at that time. But what was growing stronger is when I said no, the desire to do and see what lies ahead became stronger. Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of the tree. What did they do? They were like, well, what would happen if we do it? It, it caused them to, they had all the trees of the garden to eat from. But because this one, when they were told no, they wanted to understand why. So they were drawn to it. In the same way today, sin desires that which will harm us. I don't understand it. I don't know why. But anytime I'm told no, that's where I want to go. It's just true. And Paul acknowledges what a wretched man he is. To which I can say what a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this subject of death? Who can rescue me from this subject of death? Verse 25 then says, and if you noticed, for those of you that are looking at your Bibles, why didn't he read verse 25? Well, here we go. Why? Who can rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in mind, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. But thanks be to God who delivers me. An important statement being said there. Who can rescue me, this wretched man that I am? Rescue me from that death penalty? Thanks be to God, because there is deliverance, and it's in Jesus Christ. But I want to say something to just highlight why that news there is such good news. The term gospel, which we use regularly in the church, we we want to talk about the gospel. The good news is what it means. And why is it good news? It's because every human being is a sinner. And every human being who sins is condemned to judgment. And the wrath of God has already been revealed as to what that death penalty looks like. And it's an eternal consequence of living in a place called hell that is barely speakable to even talk about because it is so horrific in its description. But in order for mankind to accept this as being good news, mankind has to reconcile the truth about himself or herself. And that is that I am a sinner. So my first confession in this message today, of which I will give three. The first confession is is this. I am ashamed to admit that I am indeed a master sinner. It's not difficult for me to admit I'm a sinner. But to acknowledge that I am a master sinner. In other words, I am a professional sinner. I am good at sinning. If you want to know how to sin well, I can help you out. I can coach you. 
And the further I go down in life, the greater at coaching you I can become. Because as time goes on, you learn how to cover over your sins. Hide it from people. And to make it appear that you don't struggle like others may struggle. The reality is, I struggle with sin just like every single person here in this room. Because this is also true. You are a master sinner. And the longer you live your life, the better at it you'll become in justifying it and covering it over and making it appear that you're okay. Paul is writing this text in Romans 7, having been somebody that literally got to see Jesus face to face, being saved on the road to Damascus, being a, a writer of the scriptures, a leader of the early church, and he is saying, I am a master sinner. You see, right now, inside of each of us, as we say that, is it not true that there's a second voice that comes in? I am a master sinner. But I'm not as much of a master sinner as my friend Ross, who's back there. Or my friend Rod, who's over here. Or the whole Martin family over here. Isn't there something that just happens inside of us when we say, I am a master, I am good at sinning, but then we'll say, but I'm not as good as, as this other person. You see, pride in that moment is sin. It falls short of the standard of the moral code of God. Not only in act, but attitude and nature. And because we're good at it, and because we've sinned it all, and we've fallen short, the death penalty is, of course, the appropriate decision. But that's not where it ends, right? That's why Paul says, who can save such a wretched man like me? And he says, thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about that deliverance. So, again, in chapter 8 of, of John, let's look at how Jesus, after he has made the statement that you, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sin, he makes some important statements as to how life can be found. So, verse 25, they ask, then, in light of the fact that you just said, if you do not believe who I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Their natural question is, well, then who are you? Who are you? And Jesus says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, he replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I will tell the world. They still didn't understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So in this statement... You have in verse 26 that he talks about his intentional submission and love to the Father. That he doesn't say anything other than what he's heard from the Father. And they're not getting it. That he is from the Father. He is the Son of God. He is the manifestation of God right before their eyes. The entire moral holiness and code of God. I mean, it's right there before them and they can't see it. And so then he has to elaborate further. When you lift me up, and he's speaking to them, when you lift me up, then you will know. When, then you will know exactly who I am. What does the lift me up refer to? That very shortly after this, they would raise Jesus up on a cross. He would be lifted up before them. And then there became no doubt as to who he was. You see, the cross reveals the substance 
and identity of Jesus. Do not lose that. The, the cross reveals the substance and identity of Jesus. When Jesus was lifted up on that cross, the words that he spoke and the attitude that he had, so his actions, his attitude, and his nature were on full display for all to see so that they realized he himself was not a sinner. Think about it. He had just spent the morning being beaten. 39 lashes was something that would have ripped his skin apart. A crown was put on top of his head. And it says they took rods and beat it into his head. They yanked at his beard. They spit on him. They mocked him. So what was Jesus' attitude that would reveal who he is? It was revealed by his words and act when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So it wasn't anger. It wasn't comparison. It wasn't anything that would probably be the first 10 to 15 thoughts in my mind. Maybe even the first 100. Instead, it was compassion. It was empathy. And it was love. Another thing that was said that also reveals about his identity. The one time that he shows despair on the cross. Any sense of despair. But quite frankly, any of us would have been feeling despair from the moment we were told that we're going to be beaten and crucified. But his one moment of showing despair is when he said on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? You see, in the moment it says in the scriptures that the sins of the world came upon Jesus. He bore upon them the sins of the world. He became that lamb by who would then absorb all that which had happened before and in the present and in the future. And it was in that moment the father had to remove his presence to let that happen. And for the first time ever, Jesus felt what it felt like to be separated from the Father. Remember what he said in this text. He says, I only speak that which my Father has told me. He will not leave me according to verse 29. You see, in impotence, Jesus had never known what it was like to be away from the Father. He never not knew Probably a wrong way to say it. But he never not knew what it was like to be away from God until this moment. So they saw the relationship between him and the Father and the deep grieving that was going on. And then they saw how he showed love and compassion for the world in this moment by the way he said, Father, forgive them. So he loved God and he loved people. And then the truth of who he is is revealed. How do I know? It's because the pagan that was charged with overseeing the crucifixion, the one that made sure that everything was carried out to the final detail, made this statement when he said, truly, he was the son of God. Truly, not maybe, perhaps, but truly, the centurion, the Roman soldier, the pagan, who had made sure that this crucifixion was carried out to perfection, says, truly, he was the Son of God. So here's my second confession. The Father rescued me. Yes, I'm a master sinner, but the Heavenly Father rescued me, but he paid a great price to cover my sin. The price of separation, the price of death that was not due upon Jesus, but he took anyway. 
That's what he was willing to do for the sake of reconciling me back into relationship with him. So the heart of the father who loves me in spite of me leads me to the same confession of the centurion. Truly he is the son of God. He is who he says he is. But then it must also be said as to what the consequences of that decision. Look at verses 31 to 37. To the Jews who had believed, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Then Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in a family, but a son, the firstborn son in particular, belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. But I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. They were stuck in their sin. They were dismissing all that they had heard. All the evidence is right before them and they're not hearing. But Jesus makes the statement, if you believe in me, you'll be set free. Not only will you be set free, but you'll receive an inheritance like that of a son whether you're male or female, slave or free, all those who acknowledge who Jesus is and what he provides for them and puts their faith into that become heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Third confession. So while I might be a master sinner and while I can speak to the truth that Jesus paid an incredible price to make sure that I would have the opportunity to experience grace and be in relationship with God the Father, I still don't know how I can say this with confidence of the reality of what it is, but it says this. Because I have believed and shown faith in the work of Christ and received that grace, I can tell you that somehow I have an inheritance that will blow you away. We acknowledge that Jesus said he was going to go away to prepare a place for you because his father has many rooms in his mansion. And it makes no sense to me, knowing that I am that master sinner, that I can look forward to an inheritance that is greater than anything any of us here in this room have ever realized. And the beautiful thing is, is I get to invite you there too. This grace is not something earned. It's not deserved. It's not even a performance on your part. It was all done in spite of you. That's why it's called grace. But it's true to this. There is an eternal consequence as to who you say Jesus is. The first consequence being inheritance. It's also true. The other part of the consequence would be judgment. Restating what he said in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Your life depends upon the answer to that question. Who are you? It's my prayer that you'll experience the inheritance 
because I'd love to spend eternity. with those who I've grown to know and call friend, call family. And I think if we took a real stock into the reality of the condition of man that our sin condemns us, you would never withhold the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ from somebody you love. And I believe why many of us withhold that good news from those we know and love is because you do not have a great appreciation for how much your sin has caused the condition of you to fall so short. And then how great of an act of God that he would ever die for you. Let's pray. My heart is overwhelmed, Jesus. Because I realize that if you had chosen not to obey the Father and to die that death and to come alive on the third day, I wouldn't have the hope that I have today. Because I am incapable of saving myself. My sin has consumed every part of me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving this wretched man. And I ask now, Jesus, that you would save others who are hearing this message. Because there is hope in you. You desire to get, not only give us freedom for eternal life and life abundant, but you desire to give us freedom in the life that we live today. And that can come through the work of you daily transforming us. So God, would you lead each of us back to the altar to acknowledge that we are sinners in need of your grace. And then, Lord, would you cause our hearts to overflow with gratefulness and thanksgiving for the great act that you have done on our behalf. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close this service with a song called Thank You, Jesus. It's very appropriate. Because if you acknowledge just how much of an incentive you are, and incapable of saving yourself, then the grace of God, how can it be ever received but with great thankfulness? So let's stand and let's utter that with our mouths.
So Romans continues when Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or pandemic? I added that. As it, nothing, nothing shall separate us. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are going to be more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We read that scripture at the beginning of the service, but it feels different now. Because when you take stock that we're sinners in need of a savior, then you say, thank you, God, that neither death nor life can separate me from the love of God. So it's my prayer that when I came into this day today, preparing for this sermon, that the consequences would be realized that it's inheritance. This can be realized that if you choose to, by faith, to trust in the work that Jesus provides, saving you, a sinner, from the death penalty that is due you, then you get to experience the grace that will lead to eternal life that becomes an inheritance that you can look forward to. But if you continue to reject the idea as to who Jesus is, then your sin leaves you in judgment. And that's not what we want for any of you. And that's not what God wants. It's why he loved you enough to save a wretched person just like you. So if you'd like, if you're here in this room and you'd like to pray with someone, the encounter room, which is to my left, your right, would be available. If you're at home or listening on radio, please uh, go to office at lafc.net and reach out to us. We'd be glad to engage you further on behalf of what the Lord may want to do in your life. So I let this be the final word. Jesus loves you. Loved you enough to give it all so that you can enjoy life eternal with him and the Father. That's worth sharing with all the other master sinners that are walking this earth, especially the ones you know by name. Don't withhold, share. It's the greatest act of love you could offer. I say this in the name of Jesus and blessings over you in that word. Amen. You're dismissed.